Before the intercessory prayer began, we were given the lyrics of a song. And the song had the word Pisgah in it. And we sing it all the time, but I don't think you understand what it is you are actually singing. Pisgah, you see, it refers to a scenario in life where you are about to achieve something, but you're blocked by another person or thing. So when you say that you are standing on Pisgah's height, what you're really saying is, Lord, I'm standing on the thing that's blocking me from reaching you and from you reaching me. So I need you to remove whatever it is that is in my way that will keep you from having your way with me. About 26 years ago, there was a women's prayer breakfast held in the room in the back. Actually, we were having it in the classroom, Zoya. And uh, I was surrounded by women who loved me, who cared for me, who were praying for me because I was expecting at the time it was September 14th of 1998. And I didn't feel very well, but they had all my favorite food, so I had to overcome that. And I had to eat the food that were placed in front of me, that was placed in front of me. And my son, he was aggravated because what I didn't know was he was fighting for his life. He was fighting for his life in the midst of that prayer breakfast. Two days later, I was hospitalized. And many of you found your way to Hughley Hospital, to one of the three waiting rooms, and you gathered and you prayed for me because the word that was out was, she's not gonna make it. But I have a mother who you know, yes. Meryl Hilton, <laughs> and a father who you know, yes. Casta Hilton, who contacted their father, God in heaven, and they encouraged you to do the same. And as you prayed for me, and as the Lord began to restore what the enemy was trying to take, my promise on that hospital bed was, though you slay me, yet will I trust you. Because if I trust in anything or anyone other than you, I know that I'm in trouble. This message today is very personal. And if you see me cry, it's not because I'm sad. It's not because I'm unhappy. It's not because I'm scared. It's not because I'm, and there's a whole list of, because I am an overcomer. Stay right there. <laughs> Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turn. Thou 
I ask you this morning, move me out of my own way. Father, I know that you have words for your children today, and you chose this vessel to deliver it. I'm not worthy, but you are of all the glory, all the honor, and the praise. So this morning, Lord, as you have your way with me, I'm asking, Lord, that even if it's just for one, that someone will be encouraged as they are reminded that your arms are such a safe place. Daddy, I thank you for waking me this morning. I thank you for the use of my limbs. I thank you, O oh Lord, for the use of my senses. I thank you, O oh Lord, for filling my lungs with air. I now give it back to you so that you can use it as you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Sean and Sister Nicole, I want to thank you for allowing me to share this space today. Sister Keisha, thank you for the invitation. Although I tried to reject the invitation, thank you. This morning, um, I'm reminded um, we just lost a dear sister in our world church. Her name, Sister Heather Dawn Small. And I got to hear her one time. That's all God thought I needed, one time. And she was our GC Women's Ministry Director. And she just passed away a little while ago. About less than three weeks, I want to say, she passed. And one of the things she said in her first message and the only message I got to hear, she said, as women, God has called us to do what it is we were born to do, and that is to make friends. Because the more friends that we make, the closer they will be drawn to Christ. I took a class at Southwestern called Life and Teachings of Jesus Christ, and my professor spent about 30 minutes talking about a man who was his best friend. And all I wanted was to experience what he was talking about. And at the end of those 30 minutes, he said, my best friend is Jesus. And I said, I want to get to know him like that. And he said, the first thing you need to do on that journey is you need to remember he has written you this beautiful love letter. But a love letter is useless if you don't know how to read it. Many of us spend our time reading the word of God and we come across words that we really don't understand but it's within context, so maybe I'll get it as I go through. Maybe somewhere along the line, I'll understand it. Well, every morning at 8.30, I torture my students. Yes, I said torture. And I give them a text of scripture, and there are a few of them here in the audience today. <laughs> there are a few of them here. And they know that I tell them to take that text of scripture and I want you to break it apart. If there's a word that you see, even if you know the word, 
I want you to go back and look to see what the context is of that word. And when you read that word, I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to wash over you and to fill you so that you completely understand it. Because it doesn't matter whether you're reading a story or you're just reading a random verse in the Bible. Everything has a deeper meaning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel. And I'm going to say this really quickly. I'm not going to make this really, really long, but I'm going to tell you that I need you to sit and get comfortable because it's 1220. And I know a lot of you are like, ooh, but 1230, she should be done. I'm telling you right now, I work really hard on getting it out quickly, but sometimes, sometimes, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of me, and I, I'm not apologizing. I'm just letting you know it's coming, okay? I am a teacher at first. I am a teacher from birth. I will tell you that now. I am a teacher from birth. How do I know? If you ask my mother what I used to do every time I got an opportunity, it was to stand in front of the board in her classroom and write my name because I had to practice how to write my name on the board so the students would see it clearly. I, I had to. So there are those things. But there's one other thing about me I need you to know today. My name has meaning. My mother is probably hearing this for the first time today, but I'm gonna share it with you anyway. My name is Molly Charmaine Sandra Marie Hilton Gray. <laughs> Let's start with Molly. Molly means, don't laugh when you hear this. Molly means bitter, but she also means wished for child. My name Charmaine means one who sings. My name Sandra, the defender of mankind, she's brave. Marie, willful, hmm. but that name also means bitter. When my mother had me, she had a sister who was living in Toronto. Some of you know, well actually she was living in England at the time, and back then it was snail mail. So she had to let my aunt know she was having me and that she had a girl. Write to my aunt, had to get to her. And then the letter came back with my name. My name, Charmaine Sandra Marie. But Molly is what those who were in the community called me. And they called me that because I looked like a Molly. That's what they said. And so growing up in this church, there were the two sides of Molly. There was the Molly that came to church every Sabbath, who everyone knew, and then there was Charmaine, who felt trapped every time she went to school because I couldn't talk about God freely, because I couldn't be myself. I could not be my authentic self. You will hear a lot of arguments. This is not an education sermon. You'll hear a lot of arguments about public school versus church school. I'm going to tell you, my parents made the sacrifice to make sure that I attended church school in New York, only for a short time, but it was enough to let me know that that's where I belonged. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, we find a lot of people, and this is probably how you read verse 1 of 1 Samuel. Now there was a certain man of, uh, of Mount, uh, and his name was uh, something Anna, 
and the son of Jerah, oh my goodness, son of El, oh my goodness, the son of, oh, this one is easy, Tohu, and the son of, oh again, and oh then, how many of you just read it just like that in your head? Because you were thinking to yourself, they just put these names in there for no reason. We didn't really need to know those names. Let me go through one more time. I'm going to tell you a few things. That long name that starts with the letter R, let me tell you what it means. An elevated spot. So the Bible, there was a certain man of elevated spot of Mount, here we go, Ephraim, to be fruitful, of Mount Fruitful. And his name was, you see Elkanah, but his name, God has purchased. The son of, here we go again, the son of cherished one who finds mercy. The son of, my God is he. The son of bewildered and astonished. The son of honeycomb. As of honeycomb, who was an, here we go, a fruitfulness. And he had two sons, the name of one, excuse me, two wives. See, y'all are following me, amen. Two wives, the name of one was Hannah, which means favor, grace. And the name of the other, Peninnah, which means pearl or precious stone, the face. And the face had children, but favored grace had no children. And this man went up out of the city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in, here we go, because every name means something. He went every year unto the Lord of hosts in the gift from God, which is Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, mm, the two sons of Eli, you say their names, but you don't know what they mean. Hophni, which means corrupt. And Phineas, which means serpent's mouth. The, the priests of the Lord were there. And when the time was that Elkanah, now we have already said his name, but I will say it one more time, God purchased. Mm. He offered, was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Peninnah his wife and all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah, he gave a worthy portion for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. Who shut her womb? Okay. And her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. This is what Sister White has to say about Peninnah. The scene was enacted again and again not only at the yearly gatherings, but whenever circumstances furnished an opportunity for Peninnah to exalt herself at the expense of her rival. The course of this woman seemed to Hannah a trial almost beyond endurance. Satan employed her as his agent to harass and if possible, exasper exasperate and destroy one of God's faithful children. So let me set the scene for you. Hannah has married a pastor. 
If you don't believe me, you need to look at that lineage again. He's of the house of Eli, excuse me, of Levi. And in this house of Levi, he is a pastor. He is a pastor who is no longer in favor. He has fallen out of favor because he did something that only the heathens do. And that is he went and he took a second wife. Why did he take a second wife? Because he could not stand the thought of his lineage stopping with him. So he did something that he was not supposed to do as a Levi. He went and he took this second wife. And he knew that her name meant pearl and precious stone. So he thought he was bringing someone in the home that would be perfect. But instead, the Bible says that she is being used by who? To do what? To disrupt the peace in the house. Can you imagine every time she has a child, she turns to Hannah and says, <laughs> Ooh, I'm expecting another one. Uh, would you mind getting me? Because, uh, you know, I just can't get up. And because of Hannah's nature, she continues to do what is asked of her. Because of her nature, she goes along with it. And when she gets to the temple, this offering is given on her behalf. And it's a bigger offering than everyone else's. But it is not enough to fill her. If you read through, you will find that her husband and his desire, in verse 8, it says, Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou, and why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? He had the audacity to believe that he was more than enough to fill every empty space in her life. He thought he was Christ himself. That's Molly's words. The Bible is very clear. He goes on like this, and he does it so often that Hannah no longer shares with him what is wrong. I don't know about you, but if you have ever been in a situation where you want something so badly and you talk to your sisters in Christ and your brothers in Christ and they get to the place where their words are no longer comfort, they almost sound like judgment. I wanted a baby. I wanted to be, I wanted to be the greatest wife. I wanted to be the greatest mother. I just wanted that and nothing else. My mother will share with you if she chooses that I'm the child that you had to worry about just a little bit because although I love the Lord, I never dated. I didn't date. There was no one that saw me attractive enough that they would see me as their partner. I had everything that you can imagine, but I just wanted to be a good wife and a good mother. That's all I wanted. I didn't want anything else. In my culture, the more children you have, and some of you are coming from cultures like this, the more children you have, the richer you are. I was poor in spirit. The Bible has something to say about that in Matthew. I was poor in spirit. The Bible uses a word to describe Hannah, 
and it's the verbiage that they choose to use. For those of you who are Bible scholars, they use the word barren several times in the Bible, but the one that they use for her is the one that you use when you're describing a desert wasteland. In other words, there were no eggs, there was just dust. That's the word that God uses, or I should say that the scripture writers use to describe her. Are you barren? I wasn't barren. I had a child about a year after we got married and I lost it because of something that my physician did. It was about, I could not have been more than about a month. And I remember thinking that I was just going through what we do every month. I'm going to speak very candidly. I just thought that's what was happening until day 15. And I finally said, something's not right. And I went to the doctor and he said, um, nothing's wrong with you. But I couldn't stop the bleeding. So when I read in the New Testament where the Bible says she bled for 12 years, I was like, Lord, if this is what you're trying to do to me, 12 years is too long. Can we cut that off, please? My mother knew I was ill, but she didn't know what was wrong with me. This is a hint for you parents. She didn't know what was wrong with me, but she knew I needed her. So my mother sent me a plane ticket, and I met her in Jamaica. And I don't know if she remembers this or not, but she sent for me, and I went to Jamaica, and I healed in the ocean. I healed eating food that my body was familiar with. I healed just listening to my cousins giggle and cackle. I healed being surrounded by my family. I thought, well, Lord, maybe that wasn't really, hmm, until 98 when I got pregnant. I found out I was pregnant when I collapsed at school and my students were standing over me and I needed air, back up. And my then 12-year-old brother, I feel for him, I did the test when I came up to visit my parents and my brother read the fourth one because you know I had to do it multiple times because I didn't believe. And when I did that, It wasn't until I went to the doctor and he did every single exam he could possibly think of to do because I thought I could not. I thought I was barren. I'm here to tell you today, barren, <laughs> when you're in the hands of God, he can do anything. So in 98, when I lost my son, my God and I had arguments. Why did you give me such a beautiful gift and you didn't even let me unwrap it? Why would you do that to me? And his response, as clear as I'm talking to you now, was because I have some great things in mind for you and I know who you are. You're gonna try and stay at home when I ask you to go. So I can't do that for you yet. It wasn't until 2007 when I lost another. And that one, again, my father may not remember, but he was coming back from Jamaica. I'd lost this child the day before and I wasn't doing very well. And my father, picked up the phone and called my cousin Desiree and said, Desiree, I need you to take her to the emergency room. Something is not right. My blood pressure was up. I had toxemia again. Because once you have it, 
you're more likely to have it again and again and again and again, unless you catch it early. She took me to the ER and they had to do a procedure because I had lost another. I was in the midst of deciding whether or not I was going to um, adopt a baby. The baby was due on July 18th, actually, was due on July 22nd, which is my anniversary. And I said, Lord, if this child is really supposed to be for me, I was still questioning this in July. I said, Lord, if this child is really supposed to be for me, I'm gonna need you to give me a sign. Now, for those of you who are sitting in the audience, you cannot think of another sign. He has wrapped her, he has packaged her, he has given her to you on your anniversary and you're questioning whether or not it's God. Well, I questioned, I'm just telling you that. And I'm setting the stage for this story. I questioned. Then I found out that on the 18th, this beautiful baby girl was born and that she was mine. And I drove, I wasn't supposed to because I had just come out of the hospital. I drove to get her because as I shared with my, doc, my doctor that day, how dare you think that God is going to hand pick and hand carry and give me Carissa Naya Deanne, the grace of God has given me this gift, child of destiny, and you want me to stay at home? It's not gonna happen. I can imagine what Hannah felt like. You go to church every single year. You go to church every single year, and there are those well-speaking saints who say, you don't have any children yet? What are you waiting on? I don't know that because anybody said that to me. I'm just, what's wrong with you? God must be really angry with you about something. Unlike Job, you need to confess whatever it is so that he can then open your womb. God chose not to open my womb, but he opened my hands. And he allowed me to have that beautiful gift that is sitting in the audience. But I honestly didn't come here to talk to you about me, but I'm being obedient. Because if God tells you to say something, you're supposed to say it, right? The title of the message today is Drunken Prayers. Those of you who have read this story, you read it and you see these words there, but you're not really sure why they're there. The Bible says that Eli, by the way, I probably should tell you what his name means also. Eli means height or ascend or my God. So when God is, when Christ is on the cross and he says, Eli, he's calling out Eli's name, but he's not talking about Eli. He's saying, my God, which is what Eli's name means. I told you I'm a teacher first. There's so much stuff in here. You cannot look at the word of God and not dig deeper. You cannot. You will miss all the nuances. But the Bible says that Eli comes into the praying tent. He's in the praying tent and he asks her what she's doing there. And then he says to her, you need to stop drinking. Now, doesn't that strike, it, strike you as strange? The pastor saying to one of the church members, stop drinking. Well, the Bible tells us that the condition of the church at that time was so disruptive, was so messed up, that at that time, people were coming into the church with any and everything. First off, let's look at Eli's sons. I've already told you what their names mean. The Bible says that they would bring their offerings and what they would do first is they would take what they wanted and then they would put the rest in. 
So the blessing that I'm looking for from my offering is tempered with by, what did we say their names meant? By corrupt and the serpent's mouth. And they are doing this every single time someone brings an offering to the church. To the place where Eli can't even address them anymore. He is tired. He's every week someone is coming and saying, Eli, do you know what your children did? And Eli gets to the place where he doesn't even want to hear it. So he sneaks around the church instead of walking boldly to the next stop in the church. If you read through, you'll see that Miss Molly did not make that up. I promise I didn't make that up. But Eli gets to the place. We all know what his fate is. Eli is told to correct his children. He does not. And then his children, being just as disobedient as they possibly can be, took the Ark of the Covenant when God did not give them permission to do so. They die. And then in his grief, he falls to his death. Why am I telling you that part of the story? Because that part of the story is relevant. Because even though Eli was not doing everything he was supposed to do, he did do one thing right that we know of, that scripture tells us. And that is that when he finds out that she's actually praying, he says to her, may the Lord grant you whatever it is you're praying for. That's all Hannah needed. Sometimes that's all those of us who are in your midst who are grieving, that's all we need. We don't need you to give a solution. We don't need you to give anything outside of that. We need you to take it to the Lord in prayer. And it doesn't mean that you have to be out of my presence to take it to the Lord in prayer. You can do it right then and there. My students have asked me on a regular basis, Miss Molly, why do you start your prayers with daddy? I start my prayers with daddy because until God becomes a personal God, you won't believe that he can do what it is he says he can do. And because I've seen him do some amazing things in my life, I don't question. I ask the pianist to stay right there with the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, because at my lowest, that was the song God used to comfort me. At the times where I questioned whether or not I was walking the way he wanted me to, that's the song that God would send to remind me that I'm his. When I would question whether or not what it was I was getting ready to do was a part of the plan he had for me, his response was always, isn't this our song? Great is thy faithfulness. Yes, I did combine a couple of verses. It depends on what's going on. I may have to sing part of verse 1 and part of verse 3, but God knows exactly where I am. As he did Hannah. So here we have Hannah living in a house where the devil is talking to her boldly every single day. The only safe place she can find to pray is hidden away in a tent in a corner of the church. Do you have a safe place? We sing the song, there is a quiet place near to the heart of God. You don't have to come all the way to this building to pray. But I'm going to tell you, he's expecting for us to pray. Why is he expecting us to pray? Hmm. Because in our own strength, we can't do it. So here we have having no children, having a closed womb, bearing no fruit, going to the high place so she can connect with God. The Bible tells us in Genesis that God's command to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and to multiply. When God has given us a command, here's something I'm going to give you for free. He does not expect you to fulfill it in your own strength. 
His expectation is that if you are wise, you are going to allow him to be the extension of your weakness and become that strength that you need in order to do it. So I go to him with my mustard seed, sometimes half of mustard seed, and I say, God, mm, this is all I've got. And his response is, you've given me more than I need. I can take care of it. Sarah and Elizabeth understood her plight. Sarah, whose name means woman of high rank, and Elizabeth, God is my promise. God is my oath. They understood, yet at 90 years old, 90, uh, that was my prayer. Lord, if it's gonna happen, please don't let it be 90. I, I don't, not 90. We have a man who can buy everything there is to buy. He is, after all, very influential. He's very wealthy. And what he does, because he truly does fear the Lord, is he goes to the tabernacle regularly. But he still cannot provide for his wife what she needs. So what happens when even the home that you live in, the enemy has been talking all day long, and he's been allowed to talk boldly. What do you do when even the words that come out of your mouth sometimes aren't exactly what you need to encourage you? The scripture says, and the song says, take it to the Lord in prayer. If we jump to the New Testament, there's another group of people that were accused of having drunken prayers. We find that in Acts, and in the book of Acts, I'm sorry, in the Gospel of Luke, we are talking about this story. You will also read it in Acts. Luke says in this chapter, he says that they were all afraid. They were up in an upper room. They were waiting for something, but they didn't know what it was, but they spent their time in prayer. Church family, there's a lot of stuff happening. There's a lot of stuff happening in the news. There's a lot of stuff that's happening in our neighborhoods. There's a lot of stuff that's happening on our jobs. There's a lot of things that are happening all around us. And the thing that the enemy wants you to do is to be afraid. But like those disciples in the upper room, Christ says, just wait. I've got an answer for you. The Bible says when the answer came, it was like what? What was it that the Holy Spirit came in the form of? Like fire. So sometimes, sometimes you will experience that fire. And if you're like me, you can't wait to just let me say it. Just let me sing it. Just let me do it. God says when you do it, the first thing that's going to happen is those naysayers are going to question you. They're going to think you've lost your mind. They're going to think that whatever it is you're doing is against what God wanted you to do. Again, the thing that I love about the Bible is it's really clear when the Holy Spirit starts to interpret. The Bible says that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when you start reading in Acts of the Apostles and my favorite author begins to break this particular portion of the story down. She says the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the rulers of the church, had lost sight of their high privilege as God's representatives. Did I just describe Eli? They'd forgotten God. They failed to fulfill their holy mission. They kept their blessings to themselves. They received blessings, but only for their own glorification. They used restrictions that God placed on them concerning idolatry to separate themselves from all other nations. Priests and rulers were fixed on ceremonialism, the injunctions or bans and restrictions of men. They satisfied with legal religion. Conditions made it impossible to give to others the living truth from heaven. Did you hear that? 
the conditions made it impossible to give to others the living truths of heaven. They believed that their own righteousness was all sufficient. No desire for any new element in their religion, including Jesus Christ, who they crucified. They were too wise to need instruction, too righteous to need salvation, and too highly honored to need honor that comes from Christ. So what do these two stories have to do with each other? Like Hannah, you've been faithful. You've been coming to church every for every ceremonial event. You've returned not only your tithe, but your time. You're, in prayer you're on the prayer line every time the virtual sanctuary is open. But like Hannah, even in your faithfulness, you feel barren. You've prayed for that job, the financial blessing, the spiritual breakthrough, a forgiving heart, one that will forgive as well as be forgiven. You know what you've prayed for, but you have bitterness in your soul. You really want what you've prayed for. You're concerned that when others see that your prayers aren't being answered, that he really doesn't hear you so concerned with what you look like that you don't recognize that those who are watching and judging are going through their own need for drunken prayers. You don't believe me? Let's look at her story. What do we know about her? She's barren. She's married to a man who loves her. She's not fulfilled. Goes to church faithfully, participates in ceremonies, returns a faithful tithe, but she's desperate and bitter doesn't respond to earthly comfort. You'll find that in chapter one, verse eight and nine when her husband talks to her. Praise to the point of being mistaken for a drunkard. Burdened, she could not cast on an earthly friend what she can cast on God. Her husband's solution is one of arrogance. He trivializes her condition. Her husband's other wife is her enemy. She is, no, she is nowhere else to go. She has no evidence that God would hear or answer her prayer. Current state of the church, evil times, according to Patriarchs and Prophets, page 50, 570. Irreverent feasting, drunkenness, not uncommon. True worship, rarely seen. Eli, the priest, doesn't even recognize true worship when he sees it. He assumes she's drunk. He doesn't even care to know the request. If you read the chapter, you will find he does not even care to know what she's praying about. He gives a generic blessing. Her husband, the Levi, priest of her home, chose to find his own solution in life, to life's challenges. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 569. His step, the step, the stepwife, prompted by lack of faith in God, did not bring happiness. The joy and beauty of God's sacred institution had been married, had been marred, and the peace of the family was broken. On account of his irregularities in the Because of his own irregularities, Alkanah, he was no longer required to serve in the sanctuary. It was so disconnected from God that God had to send someone on two occasions, this would be Eli, on two occasions to tell him to attend to his sons. If you look in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 27 through 36, and 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 17 through 21, it says, then he sent a child. What child? His personal issues were outweighing his responsibilities. You need to read about his sons and pray, because we have a lot of children that we want to write off because they're not behaving the way that we would want them to. Hannah begins to recognize that she needs to plea on her own behalf. It is this move that makes her appear drunk. She's moved to the throne room of God. 
She's moving in her prayer. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 370 says, she had drawn near to the entrance of the tabernacle. She's pouring out her heart to God and could care less who sees. When was the last time you prayed and you could care less who sees? Right here I will share, this has been modeled for me. I have a grandmother, her name is Edith Patterson. My grandmother passed away several years ago. As a matter of fact, she passed away the year I got married. My prayer was, Lord, I just want her to live long enough to know that I got married. So I got married in July and my grandmother passed three days before Thanksgiving. There are prayers that we pray that we're not really sure whether or not God hears and whether or not he's answering because he's making us wait. But he cares about every single detail of your life. Amen. The Bible is very clear. It does not say that he counts the hairs on your head. It says that he has numbered the hairs on your head. If he counted, then he would say one, two, three, four, and he would have to start from one like the rest of us. But the Bible says he's already numbered them. So he knows when number 573 came out in your brush. He knows when you got in the shower and you were washing your hair, number 6,332 decided to stick to the wall instead of going down the drain like it should have. He knows you. And because he knows you, he says, come to me. My husband does something that I think is very powerful. When we do couples ministry, he always says, what if your spouse could not speak on their own behalf at the throne? What would you say to God on their behalf? Do you know what they want? Do you know what the desire is of their heart? Do you know the desires of your children's heart? Do you know the desires of those people that you pray for? That when they ask you to pray for, just pray for me, sister, that what they really want you to do is have a drunken prayer for them. They want you to go to the Lord of heaven on their behalf and pour everything out like their lives depend on it. Because guess what? They do. Let's talk about what drunken prayers look like. Children of the Most High God who are faithful, barren, bitter, desperate, and anxious for a response from Christ. That's what we look like. What do we, what do those prayers require of us? Well, first off, there's no alcohol required. Only the drunkenness of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. You've seen me. I couldn't pull it together when I was sitting over here earlier because while you are hearing, oh, those are beautiful songs, I'm hearing how God is talking to me. So I shared with faith, I love the Lord. He heard my cry. That's the first gospel song I ever sang a solo to. I've already told you about great is thy faithfulness. If I told you how many times God talks to me in song throughout the day. You see, I believe Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17 when he says he's going to bring me back from exile and then he's going to sing over me. Have you ever thought about what God's voice sounds like when he sings? We like to talk at lengths about Lucifer and how gifted he was and how when he opened his mouth, he could sing the whole choir. We're talking about the creator of that guy. When the prayer begins, you're conscious that there are others in the room, in the house or wherever you are. Then there comes a point where you forget where you are and nothing else matters except getting to the king. You may appear to be completely out of your mind, drunk. You know in every fiber of your being that it has just been for you. The king of kings would have come to save you.
The Holy Spirit himself has to bring you back into the room consciously because he knows that not everyone in the room is in tune nor in position to embrace what you are in prayer about or that you're even in prayer. It's not about you. It's about your need to have an audience with your master. You bear your soul and lay the truth at the feet of truth. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's spirit is right alongside, helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs or aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition, and keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is working into something good. Where do they take place? Anywhere, we don't care. It could be on the bus traveling from one place to the next. It can be on an airplane. When the people next to you have already told you that they're an atheist and then the turbulence comes and all of a sudden they see your Bible and they want to talk to you. Can you pray for me please? Pray that the, I, I don't want to die in this plane. When you recognize that those people that you've been some, so concerned about embarrassing yourself in front of have circumstances and situations that they need to have a drunken prayer about as well. When you no longer have peace with complacency, when what used to bring you comfort now brings you discomfort. Chocolate doesn't do it, help us Lord. TV doesn't work. Hanging out with your friends only makes you restless. Sleep won't come. Music doesn't work. You can't even truly turn to a family member because they don't get it. Their advice only makes you mad. When you care more about the connection with Christ than the location, you're praying everywhere for everything, praying without ceasing. In the middle of rush hour traffic, you're now raising your hand and singing at the top of your lungs to a song that has a hook that reminds you that he is Lord. You recognize that every little thing you have belongs and comes from God, and without him, it's all worthless. When you begin noticing the people around you and praying for them because God won't let you move until you do, Lord, please be with this mother who's struggling with these children in line. If she's struggling with them in line, Lord, what is she dealing with at home? Father, help her. When you shower, when you cook, when you take your morning walks, when there's no evidence that your prayers are even being heard. Modern medicine says that you, what you've asked for is not possible. You've been told that those who think who you think have a spiritual connection, just give up, it's hopeless. Your financial resources are non-existent. You're exhausted, the job listings in your field, you've exhausted the job listings in your field. When you see yourself at the bottom of a pit that you can't get yourselves out of, others have tried, you've seen them, you've failed. You recognize that you have nowhere else to go. You're in a crowd and just as lonely as can be. When you don't even find comfort in the pleasure of church, the praise and worship section has, has great music, but you are untouched. Whew. When the sermon leaves more questions than answers. When like the apostles, you know what to do, but you feel uneducated and inadequate for the task God has placed before you when you don't believe you have the eloquence to do a message, to do a message justice. You can't present like E.E. E. Cleveland or Henry Wright or Deblier, Snell or Keith Gray. You're gifted in many things, but you don't see their value to God yet. When you can't make sense of the things taking place at home, you open your mouth and all that comes out are the trappings of a great argument. Or better yet, you resorted to being silent because that will teach them. When you can't function without the TV being on, when your computer or telephone has become your new friend, 
You can't have a conversation without touching one or both, because you see, they don't judge you. When you recognize that the divorce, divorces are on the rise because no one wants to commit monog to monogamous relationships anymore. It's all about friends with benefits and making it work until you fall out of love. When you realize that all kinds of abuses are on the rise, verbal, sexual, and physical. Keep in mind that according to Revelation 3, 14 through 22, as the church of Laodicea, we are in a condition of being lukewarm, wishy-washy, inconsistent, wealthy and in need of nothing, wealthy and in need of nothing in their own eyes, really naked, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, unaware of how we really look. Because you have to reach a place in your relationship with God where you recognize he is in charge, not you, as long as you try to maintain control, he'll let you. He doesn't want you to, but he'll let you. He has also said, I will not torture you with spending eternity with me. You can hold on to those things if you want to, but the better thing would be to surrender it to me. We all know about Samuel. This is one of Hannah's blessings. The prophet that God used to bless Israel for many generations to come. The Bible also tells me in 1 Samuel 2 verse 21 that Hannah's womb was not open just one time, but rather opened enough for three more sons and two daughters. And here it is in 1 Samuel 2 verse 11. Read with me. I'm reading from the New King James Version. It says, Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. God has not given him a son, but God has also restored his place in the temple. The addition, Patriarchs and Prophets says, page 571, the mother's heart was filled with joy and praise, and she longed to pour forth her gratitude to God the spirit of inspiration came upon her and Hannah prayed. Hannah's words were prophetic. Both of David who should reign as king of Israel, who isn't born yet, and of the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, referring first to the boasting of an insolent and continuous woman. The song points the destruction of the enemies of God and so much more. This is a prayer that we later hear Mary say in Luke chapter 1. So what does God use, do with her drunken prayer? Because all of her prayers are drunken at this point. Because she knows it's only when she pours it out that God hears. God uses her to then bless the mother of the soon coming Messiah. When you are reading in the Bible and you are reading the stories, do not overlook the names. Do not overlook those things you thought you knew because then we're leaning on our own understanding. Christ says, don't do that. In all your ways, acknowledge me and I will direct your path. One of my favorite musicians, I call him the modern day David, he says, the greatest gift of man from the Father would change us all in ways we've never seen. Yet his first moments were in a manger, and soon every living thing would call him king. Yes, they would. Though we didn't know it then, then we soon would understand that his life would reveal God's perfect plan. Why? He's not just a man. He is God. And he is not just a baby. He's a king. No, he's not just a lamb, but the Lion of Judah, Savior and ruler of all. Amen. Daddy, take my feeble offering. 
and I'm asking you, Lord, to press it down, shake it up, and then pour it out as you will. Lord, you have the right to have your way with us today. Father, as we stop and as we take the time to think about your words, how you took the prayer of Hannah in her condition and you transformed her life and the lineage of her family through her womb. Lord, we're asking that as we are impregnated with your word, that you will enable us to use our words, our breath, Lord, for your name's honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. <laughs>